Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you, as it always is. Um, what, a, what a timely uh, season to reflect on those words that we just sang. I certainly hope you believe that. Sometimes we check ourselves when we uh, sing certain songs and we have to ask, do I really believe this, right? Um, when it comes to, you know, our thinking in this present world, uh, we live in a time where we can be tempted to think, oh no, big bad Russia is making its move, the end is near, what's going to happen? And we by no means want stuff like that to be a cause for fear. So when we sing, this is my father's world, remember that we can believe that, because it is true. It is good news to us, as we sang, why should my heart be sad? Why should it? Why should we be downcast? Why should we fear what is going on? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. This is good news to the believer. This truth is something that is spiritually discerned. You cannot know it apart from the truth of the gospel. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. And, uh, you know, I may have mentioned it before, but we stand in a time of redemptive history where Jesus who died is not yet satisfied because He is still doing His work. He is still exercising His reign. And through the gospel, we know and are confident as believers in this King that earth and heaven will be one as we preach the good news. So don't let any of the current geopolitical rumblings give you a faint heart. What we sang just now is as true today as it has been at any other time in history. Christ reigns, and He is a good and faithful King, and He will have His way, and we operate under His rule, not the rule of any other would-be man or emperor or empire for that matter. We follow the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we know that even in the here and now, He will be satisfied when earth and heaven are one. So, I just want to encourage you saints this morning to take heart in that very precious truth and to not be shaken by current events. So in light of that, let's pray and we will open our text together. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time we can enjoy this morning in your word. We rejoice that it is true, not just true for us, but it is true universally. Uh, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel we thank you that we can have this to stand firm in as well as grow firm in, firmly in. And I pray that the words spoken this morning will be yours and not mine, and that your people would be blessed. Commit this time to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, also it's helpful to say that not only do we realize that the fact that Christ reigns is pertinent to us today, but it was also relevant to, very relevant to what the first century church was going to. And you'll see a lot of glimpses of that in our passage this morning. So please open your Bibles with me to the book of Second Peter, and we will continue our study. Continue our study in first, or Second Peter. Title of today's sermon, Posers of Doom and Deliverance. Last Lord's Day it was Posers, just an introduction. Of course, uh, Peter here is helping... The saints, both then and now, to identify the danger of false teachers and how to stand firm against them and what our course is when 
that is taking place in the church. We remember that false teachers are typically an internal threat. They come in um, often secretly and then introduce all manner of strange doctrines which serves to draw us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that the primary uh, thing that they are to to draw us into is to uh, make us deny the Master who bought us. That That seems to be the chief overriding error that is being introduced. Whatever specifics of their teaching uh, may entail, Peter very clearly says in chapter 2 of 2 Peter that they are introducing destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. So that seems to be the chief error that is being introduced, a denial of Christ himself or God himself, whatever master may refer to. But it is a denial of his lordship. And that is definitely something that the church desires to stand against. And so we strengthen ourselves through the power of the gospel and the authority of the word of God. So let's let's read our passage this morning. The introduction was verses 1 through 3 in 2 Peter chapter 2. Today our text will be, Lord willing, uh, from verse 4 through verse 9. I know your uh, bulletin says verse 10. I changed my mind. It's going to be through verse 9, hopefully. So I'm not sure how far we'll get, but I trust that this will be an encouraging uh, text to us all. So let's start from verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction... By reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let's just finish off this passage, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So verse 10 there is in the paragraph, same paragraph as, the, as, the, as, th- as 4 through 9, uh, but I think it belongs better to the, um, the next passage. So posers of doom and deliverance, this is basically what this passage is talking about, right? False teachers are still in view, but it depicts their doom, but also God's deliverance of His people. So this should bring us a great measure of comfort because it is clear from Scripture that that God has not changed His policy toward His people. Though we may undergo great and terrible persecution at times, we recognize that God will save us. We We will not undergo the same, the judgment, the damnation, the doom that the unbeliever undergoes, and we will highlight those hopefully at the end of this message. But before we get into the primary exposition, we need, to, we need to note a few things. This will help establish some context. Some of these things will be repeated, but I think it's necessary because many of the uh, underlying truths represent uh, paradigm shifts from how we typically may view prophecy, right? So if some of this stuff is, is new to you, it's okay because a lot of it is new to me, but we have to you know, walk together very carefully through these Scriptures. And I would say if you have any questions, feel free to hit us up. 
We have our Emmaus Road Media podcast now, so we can address some of these issues in deeper form that will be helpful uh, to all of us. So please keep that in mind. We want questions, especially when we introduce uh, some teaching that may be a little newer to you. So a few things pertinent to mention about this text. Remember, this context that Peter is uh, teaching through involves the impending parousia, that is, Christ present in judgment over the city of Jerusalem, and hence the entire old Judaic establishment. And then some, you could even say the whole old world. We'll get to that later. Again, so the examples of judgment that Peter gives parallel the impending destruction of Jerusalem. So, of course, we need to read this, first and foremost, within its immediate context, that it is not speaking about future prophecy. It's speaking about fulfilled prophecy. This has been fulfilled historically now, although we want to be just as quick to add that it, does, that it in no means means that there's no application for us. There's plenty of application here. I believe that this establishes a pattern. So rather than a passage like this describing the end of the world, we are rather seeing that rebellious Jerusalem, what Jesus himself calls the synagogue of Satan, is the first in a long line of enemies that Christ will destroy. So we see this this event sort of as an earnest, like a down payment, which clearly expresses that Jesus will put all enemies under his feet, beginning with apostate Jerusalem. So as 1 Corinthians 15 indicates, this pattern will continue to repeat itself until death itself, the last and most brutal enemy, is finally swallowed up in victory. So we, of course, look forward to that day. In the meantime, we preach the gospel faithfully and advance the kingdom of God as his spirit empowers us. That's the first thing. Secondly, note that this passage, looking at our Bibles carefully, represents a giant if-then statement. This whole passage is a giant if-then statement. And the statement contains three examples to make Peter's point, that if God can deliver the godly and keep the ungodly under judgment, right? So keeping the ungodly under judgment is exemplified by the angels who are cast into hell. That's the first example. And rescuing the godly is exemplified by Noah and Lot. Say that again. So keeping the ungodly under judgment, which is something God says he will, or Peter says God will do, is exemplified by these angels, whoever they may be, who are cast into hell. And rescuing, delivering the godly, is exemplified by the lives and experiences of Noah and Lot. So, while Peter, for the most part, is really raking false teachers over the coals, he does take the opportunity to encourage the saints that at the same time we're experiencing a lot of persecution and resistance from these false teachers, he is able to encourage them, right? Because the question is going to come with all this judgment talk, and you could, you could ask this to any of the apostles who were preaching and teaching and writing Scripture at that time, John, Peter, Jude, James, if, if these things, these terrible things are going to happen to the ungodly, then what becomes of us? What happens to the church? What happens to the body of Christ? And that's a, that's a good question. And so Peter takes the time here to give them immense hope, immense anticipation for the deliverance that God will bring. And that's important, because as we've discussed before, is these false teachers have a way not only of deceiving, but dividing the body on many levels. 
preparing the soil for a spiritual and even ecclesiastical tyranny. First, we have to resist that, knowing that the Lord will judge those who are false. But what's going to happen to the people of God? We'll hopefully answer that question today. Thirdly, note the interplay. The interplay between the motifs of the unrighteous and ungodly and the righteous and the godly in this passage. See, there are those who sin. There is the world of the ungodly. There's ungodly lives. There's unprincipled men, lawless men, the unrighteous. And then on the other hand in this passage, you have the the preacher of righteousness. You have righteous Lot. Lot, who is described as righteous three times. That righteous man and the godly. The godly are judged. And the righteous are not only delivered, but note this, they are delivered through judgment. Delivered through judgment. Which brings us to yet another theme, is deliverance or salvation through judgment. That is to say, as we we scan the biblical narrative, we find that more often than not, when God saves His people, it is through the instrument of judging His enemies. God judges the enemies of the righteous and thereby delivers the righteous. Huge pattern in Scripture. Think about even in the Garden of Eden, God announced judgment on the serpent, thereby saving Adam and Eve and their progeny for all who would go on to believe in the promises of God, ultimately believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. God saved Israel through judging Egypt, right? Led them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He just pummeled Egypt, all those plagues, and they wouldn't get it. Then he finally put to death their firstborn, judged Egypt, and then led Israel out through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Same thing with the book of Judges. God sends judges who come and deliver Israel, even though they are in unbelief and idolatry, but he he delivers them from the surrounding pagan nations by judging those pagan nations through the judges he gives them. And so to this, we can add the deliverance as well of righteous Noah and righteous Lot. You could say that, yes, Noah was delivered when the world was judged. He was saved, he and his family. Righteous Lot delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah as that judgment came upon those two cities. So huge theme. It's a, I would encourage you on your own time Uh, study that theme. Very important in the development of biblical theology and just our understanding of God's saving work. That He saves His people through judging those who are not His people. So keep these four things in mind as we're going through the rest of this passage and, and, and even this chapter. So let's get into now our primary exposition, starting at verse 4. See what this is all about. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So that's the first part of this. That's the first if statement. And remember, the, for, the, the first word there is for. So you look back, he's talking about those who will be judged, that their judgment from long ago, verse 3, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So God has not forgotten the judgment upon the wicked. In fact, as this clearly demonstrates, their judgment is already on the way. They've already been marked out for judgment. And so this is the first example he gives of that judgment. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So this is a very kind of gloomy image of what befell these angels. Okay? 
So some of these are, you know, the following two are pretty straightforward with Noah and Lot. Verse 4 is a little trickier. It requires a lot of, uh, a lot of exegesis, a lot of investigation. So the first thing we can say here, take it at face value, God did not spare angels when they sinned. So we know that there were angels and we know that they sinned. So just, just by way of reminder, um, in its parallel passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, we, we did that before this book. And so I have a sermon on that if you want to refer to it. I'm not going to go down that road and take a whole Sunday morning to try to explain what or whom these angels are. So go ahead and refer to that. Try to get through this concisely enough. But anyway, I made the case that these angels, or as 1 Peter describes them, spirits, often used for what we know as angels, spiritual beings, were angels who rebelled against God by having sexual relations with human women. That's why we read Genesis 6 this morning, that the sons of God, typically, typically understood as angels in the Old Testament, beheld the daughters of men, and so took as many of them as they wanted, and, and offspring were born to them. They were called the Nephilim, that is, the fallen ones, the ones who fell. Unnatural offspring whom, as Genesis 6 describes, become these mighty men of old, men of renown, or that is, men of the name, actually use their strength and might and valor to make great names for themselves. So once again, we don't have to rehash everything from that message, but that is just to establish uh, that interpretation. Uh, so go ahead and refer to that message on 1 Peter 3. I think it was 18 through 21. So whatever, so whatever position you take on, on the angel's work, once again, this is not Peter's main point. We have to understand that with this passage. It's not Peter's main point. Uh, other than the angel view, some, some think, depending on the commentator, some think that, this, that these angels actually refer to messengers, Namely, that if you look back at Genesis 5, when it talks about the generations of Adam, it, it, these, these angels in question were actually human angels, messengers, that they belonged to the seed of Seth, right? There was the seed of Cain, and then there is the seed of Seth, and that these were the sons of God in question, and that they basically apostatized, right? They, they left their station and, and took for themselves ungodly women, took themselves ungodly women, as many as they chose, and so drove humanity into spiritual apostasy. So whatever, whatever view you take on this, I think the same thing is in view. If you take the angel view, the, the horrific crime there, of course, is, is uh, polluting the human genome. Because remember in Genesis chapter 3, all we know about the Messiah is that it was going to be a human being. And so if you take the angel view, you see a pollution of the human genome so that if the entire human race's uh, genetics is polluted, you'll never actually have a human deliverer. And of course, that would completely throw off all the promises of God. If you take the Seth view, meaning pointing to the fact that these are, these are indeed men or humans, um, that the problem is similar. What you have is wholesale apostasy. That is, if every human being on earth is led into unbelief, then you have no faithful man. You have no believer to pass on the truth of God. You have no human, belie human believer to pass on the promised seed. Whatever you may take, both of those are horrific things to do. And they, so horrific were they, that it seems that God saw it fit to judge them in a particular way. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. Peter Peter, remember, draws 
uh, from, from Greek mythology, the word Tartarus, right? A place that was way, way, way deep down there. I think it said is that, that, that Tartarus was as far below Hades as earth was below heaven. I think I've got the saying right. But that was reserved, that was reserved, it is thought, for the worst of the worst. And Jude remarks on this as well. If you want to mark down in your Bible, Jude, verse 6, it says, And angels, speaking of the same situation, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the, for the judgment of the great day. There is enough similarity in this passage to 2 Peter 2.4 that we can, I think we can assume safely that, that Peter and Jude are speaking of the same event. So these angels or messengers, they abandon their proper abode, whether that is the abode of the angelic or the abode of simply representing Seth and being righteous purveyors of the promise. Whatever occurred there, there is a special judgment set upon them that God thought appropriate. So he has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So we would say that bondage in the sense of if they're human, but, they're, but their human souls are in a special place of darkness and blackness reserved for a particular judgment, or those angels are also kept under these eternal bonds for a particular day of judgment. So hopefully, hopefully that is explained well enough to be able to follow. But nonetheless, that is a terrible judgment reserved for them. And so we want to be able to take this, take this seriously. I mean, we're warned about this departure, right? Even, in our, even as God's people, we are warned about such apostasy. Listen to Deuteronomy 29, 18-20. There's echoes of this there, but I think really um, impact... Uh, the perception of the church concerning the judgment of, to come upon Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20, we read this, So that there will not be among you a man or woman, a family or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God, to go and to serve the gods of these nations. But there will not be among you a root-bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So you see there, there is a departure from their station, a departure from their abode living in accordance with how God has designed them, whether it be angel or man or Sethite. So listen to this. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven." Pretty terrible. Pretty terrible. So there's, there's plenty of application there. And that's, and that's how, what Peter warns, right? There's the parallel. Keep your proper abode. You have confessed Christ. Continue to trust in Him. Do not apostatize. Do not get pulled back into that old system which is perishing, which is already long under God's judgment. Walk with God. Rest in His sufficiency. Rest in His provision. He gives it to us. So do not treat it like it is a profane thing, but continue to rest in all that God provides for us. Serious warning. One we must take heed of. And I think one that is far too often dismissed as inconsequential. So let's move on. So you have these pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Okay? So once again, we want to see 
what it is that is going on in this passage. And I would commend to you the work of Peter Lightheart. It was very, very helpful um, in my study, and he makes a lot of good points. So I want to give credit to where credit is due and just share some of, some of the insights uh, that he gives to help with this, this passage. So he, he, he remarks that the judgments for, for which these angels are reserved, the, this, these, the, this pits of darkness, right? The, this, this pit of hell that, he, that Peter describes, he says it is the same judgment that Peter discusses throughout the letter. And I think that case can be made. That's why he brings it up. Whatever judgment awaits them, it is the same. It, it, it basically relates to the judgment that is to come upon Jerusalem. So that timing will be the same. So when he talks about the day of judgment in, in chapter 3, verse 7, or the day of God in chapter 3, 12, this judgment that these angels are awaiting relates to this event of the judgment on Jerusalem. And so as he remarks that the angels who sinned in the time of Noah were judged in the first century judgment on the old covenant. So listen further. You have this parallel between what is happening with these angels in 2 Peter 2.4 and of course God's plans to judge the present heavens and earth. Right? I don't look at the present heavens as a future event. But that's what he says, present heavens and earth, meaning to this old system, right? this old economy, this old establishment, that with the destruction of Jerusalem, it's all coming down. And they're being kept in that, in the black darkness. And so this leads us to another conclusion that I think is important. Helps, helps us see the full scale of Christ's reign and in addition to the full scale of His judgment on Jerusalem. Because the judgment on Jerusalem, I would maintain, is not merely a judgment upon apostate Jews. There is much more, there is much more going on here. That's why Peter talks about the heavens and the earth burning away. This is a judgment on the, old, the whole old order. Now, helpful quote from Lightheart here. He says, it might seem odd to think that the events of Jerusalem would have nothing to do with the judgment on the prelapsarian wicked. But the New Testament is clear that the work of Christ's first coming, that is his death, resurrection, and ascension, affected the dead as well as the living. Now mark this passage down. Hebrews 11 lists all these Old Testament saints and ends by saying that they died without receiving what was promised because they were going to receive something better. Okay? So not only were they going to receive something better, but they were going to receive something better along with us, present Christians. So our fathers, like Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, are going to receive the same something better as present Christians. Christians in the first century. Going on, this is consistent with the overall theology of Hebrews. Listen to this. Jesus is the forerunner who enters the most holy place before any others, before the Old Testament saints. So he says, he concludes, his judgment on Jerusalem would have similar effects on the wicked dead. They are confined in darkness, that is, these angels. They are confined in darkness, but when Jesus brings the present heavens and earth to an end, they will all be judged too. Not only the martyrs of Jerusalem, but all martyrs are being avenged in the first century. Okay, so what's my authority for that, you may ask. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. 
I think we find our answer. Let's hope I can find this passage because that'd be awkward if I couldn't. <laughs> Here we go. Jesus is specifically talking about the judgment on Jerusalem. So what are we saying? This is judgment upon the whole old order. Listen to verse 34, Matthew 23. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. All the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel. Wow, he's going back to the beginning. Where the first murder by a man upon a man is, a, is carried out. To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, here's, here's the key. Verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So that is my authority to say that this judgment on Jerusalem is more is simply is more than simply judgment on Jerusalem. It represents the fall of the entire old creation, the entire old order, with all of its paganism, with all of its legalism, with all of its apostate Judaism. It, reckon, it, it represents a definitive end. That's why we can conclude further that this that this judgment on Jerusalem is only the beginning of Christ crushing all of his enemies. And we would say, Amen. We desire that the Lord would do that to judge his enemies, to judge those who rebel against them. And our task in the meantime is to call those rebels to repentance, trusting that the Lord knows those who are his own and will deliver them through the gospel from that horrible judgment. But it begins, begins in Jerusalem. So that is what is going on there. The judgment upon the entire old system. Consider some some other things. And by the way, this, uh, this passage is also parallel in Luke 23 as well, or, or Luke 21, I believe. Um, so let's look at verse 5, continue on in our passage. So we understand that that judgment was severe and it will be ultimately fulfilled when this whole shakedown upon Jerusalem happens. So verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world. So we have another if. If he did not spare the angels, and if he did not spare the ancient world. So that further builds our case that this old system is coming down. But preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So there's another, there's another parallel. There's righteous Noah, godly Noah, and then the world of the ungodly. So let's look at this. This is the ancient world. That is the world before the flood. And of course, when Noah exited the ark, what did he do? He entered a new and purified creation, one that would typify the new heavens and the new earth as we today enter into Christ by faith. You think about those parallels and those typologies and the fulfillment of them. Even when Christ exited the tomb, what happened? He himself became the beginning, the originator of the new humanity and new creation. He is, he is its author, Jesus in his resurrection, became the author, the beginning of the new humanity, so that all who trust in him are added to that new humanity. That is why the glory of God dwells in us, and the Holy Spirit is conforming us to Christ's likeness. We are a new creation in the making. And so here we have a Noah as a preacher of righteousness, and I think here we have a major encouragement as the people of God. You realize that every believer is a preacher of righteousness. 
You say, no one told me that. Well, I'm telling you today. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are like Noah. You are a preacher of righteousness. It is righteousness that undergirds our teaching. It's amazing. People thought Noah were crazy. Right? People thought Noah was crazy. This guy's out of his mind. Here he is, right? Years and years, over a hundred years, building this ark. Right? The, Lord, the, the word of the Lord comes to Noah. Build an ark. Build an arky-arky. Build it out of gopher barky-barky. Right? So he obeyed. He just did as God commanded him. Can you imagine that? He was perfect in his generation, and the, and the rest of the world was apostate. In fact, when the floods came, only Noah and his family were delivered, the Bible tells us. No one else believed his message when the flood came. seems that the flood came in the year that Methuselah died. There's one right, the, the countdown, as it were. See, when the, before the flood waters came, Noah was the crazy one, but when the flood waters came, guess who were the crazy ones? Who were the crazy ones? The ones who did not enter the ark. And it's not as if Noah didn't tell them anything. He was a preacher. We know what Noah was doing. He was building the ark and he was preaching the gospel. He was a preacher of righteousness. Such a general yet important statement. Noah preached in his own wicked generation the righteousness of God. And like Noah, we attest to the unrighteousness of men and the righteousness of God. See, that's why it's so important. Friends, the righteousness of God is our platform. When we proclaim the gospel, we go and we tell everyone, God is righteous. That's our platform. Why? Because man is not righteous. But what do we find about the gospel? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed in us. But it is our starting point. But there is a God and that He is righteous. And that He will uphold that righteousness, either in salvation or damnation, but he will uphold his own righteous character. So Noah, preaching, you can imagine how he was ridiculed, mocked. We don't know if he was ever assaulted, but there was no doubt a wonder of what in the world he was doing. Could you imagine just being out on the plains? I was in Long Beach uh, recently, visit to California, and uh, the Queen Mary's there, just floating on the water, almost a thousand feet long, somewhere thereabouts. And it's amazing from how far away you can see that. I mean, you're down, you're way down the road, and there's this big boat. Could you imagine Noah's Ark, this big wooden box, about 450, 550 feet long? It's unmistakable. It's something that is going to provoke some kind of response, whether you believe or not. You're going to wonder, why are you building that ark? Because God told me to. If you're, in, if you're in unbelief, you will mock it. You will ridicule. Why would God say such a thing? Furthermore, who are you to say that God would say such a thing? Who are you to tell me that God is going to flood this earth and wipe out everybody? Where is the belief? We know that Noah believed God. Can you imagine that? Over 100 years preaching righteousness, no converts outside of his family enter the ark when the flood finally came. I point this out because most of us have a hard time. Listen to this. Most of us have a hard time being rejected for a hundred seconds. And Noah was rejected for over a hundred years. That's some serious spine, serious backbone that Noah has. 
to continue preaching righteousness. You know why he continued preaching righteousness? Because he knew that God would deliver him. He believed that. See, Noah, like we are, was justified. He was justified by grace through faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He believed what God had said. And so he acted like it. Just really puts in perspective how easily we can be discouraged from our task of preaching righteousness. A little rejection, a little ridicule, and before you know it, you're apologizing to your detractors for offending them and making them feel so judged and so inferior as you preach this hateful, intolerant gospel. Well, you know what? The gospel hates unrighteousness, and the gospel is intolerant to all other messages, so so be it. You preach righteousness. Reminded of our uh, journey along with, uh, with Gregory and, and Jeremy up to Denver this past Wednesday. Uh, what a blessing it was to be able to testify with dozens of other Christians. I don't know if, if you can attest to this, Jeremy. I didn't meet anyone who testified in support of this uh, abolish abortion bill who were not Christians. Everyone I talked to that was in support of this bill was a believer. I mean, remarkable. That seems to be this line of demarcation. You're against human sacrifice and, and infanticide. You must be a Christian. That seems to be how it is these days. But what was our platform? By what standard were we making this testimony? We each got three minutes. It was the righteousness of God. That was our platform. And our testimony was turned away. Written off as crazy talk. I mean, we predicted it. It'd be written off as crazy talk, as inflammatory rhetoric, the fact that overwhelmingly those who gave testimony were white men who did not understand the plight of the women they oppress. Not making this up. To quote our president, not a joke. This is for real. And here we are in the lion's den, essentially, testifying to unbelieving, God-hating lawmakers that their laws are unrighteous and they need to repent. But may we have the resolve of Noah in times like these. When we look at a, a bill like this getting struck down, and instead of saying, well, on to the next one, I guess we should just give up, it's no use. No, rather, our resolve is galvanized and we persevere. Like Abraham, we look forward to a better country. And so we train up the generations after us to continue to stand against this evil until infanticide and human sacrifice is obliterated from the face of the earth. That's our resolve. And to understand that God is using this, using us, His people, to this end. To proclaim, you realize we, the reason we proclaim righteousness, not only so that people are saved and God is glorified, we proclaim righteousness so that unrighteousness is crushed. So that unrighteousness is no more. So all but exalts itself against the righteousness of God is put down. And we keep preaching righteousness again and again and again. So you ask, how long do we preach righteousness? Here's a good clue. We preach righteousness until God judges unrighteousness. And we continue to stand against it faithfully. Here's the next thing. Here's the next example. After Noah, again, with seven others, when God brought a flood upon the world, the ungodly swept away the ungodly with the waters. And it's true that waters are often used to illustrate judgment. So let's look at verse 6. Here's another one. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives later, and if he rescues righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Let's stop at those two verses. 
lot going on here. It's, it's amazing how he says quite a bit more about Lot than he does uh, about Noah, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from Lot. Remember, how did Lot end up in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he saw that the land was well watered. He looked, saw, wow, that's good land. I'm going to be rich. So he ends up settling there in what even very early on in Genesis, the Scripture describes as a very wicked city. It's like the stench of their sin went up to the nostrils of God Himself, but the Lord judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is very pertinent to the, to the, the immediate situation at hand because as Peter is, is, is announcing this soon impending doom upon Jerusalem, we find that it's very appropriate because in Scripture, Jerusalem is likened to Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness. Listen to Jeremiah 50, verse 40. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, declares the Lord, no man will live there, nor will any son of man residing, reside in it. Of course, that's foretelling the Chaldean invasion upon Judah and the destruction of the city. Listen to the words of Lamentations. Again, Jeremiah. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. Talked last Lord's Day about the suddenness, the unexpected arrival of judgment. And when it happens, it's typically when no one is looking for it, when life is going on as usual, when people are crying peace, and when people see peace really as the absence of the preaching of righteousness, ironically enough. Listen to the Lord's warning in Luke 17, 28-29. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Another testimony from Jeremiah. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood and they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her habit, inhabitants like Gomorrah. That is a very sharp and clear warning that the judgment of God is going to befall Jerusalem in a way that is as intense and, and severe as that of Sodom and Gomorrah. It would befall Jerusalem in a very severe way. In Revelation 11.8 gives us a glimpse of this. And their bodies will lie on the street of the great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. So that's comparing Jerusalem about to be destroyed with Sodom. So great was its wickedness. So even in the Revelation, Jesus likens Jerusalem and its wickedness to Sodom. So, the warning here is very clear. Whatever happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. So let's look at the plight of Lot here. Once again, verse 6. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. So this is severe judgment. Nothing is left. In fact, it is thought, depending on who you trust for archaeological evidence, that there, there has been a city located and it's full of sulfur. You can just find sulfur balls laying on the ground. And the whole city looks like it had been completely destroyed and suddenly. And he made that an example to those who would live ungodly lives after. So he even gave this graciously as a warning to those who would persist 
and living ungodly lives. So if he rescued righteous Lot, and he did, and it says of Lot that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So we see what Lot is going through here, and in a sense, we really, we really kind of feel his pain. He's going, through, he's going through a very horrible ordeal. He has to witness this ungodliness prevail in his own time. A city that he went to to build a life. A city that he lived in even while trusting in God. And I think sometimes, I was thinking about this, we're pretty hard on Lot. When we read, when we read the book of Genesis, we read chapter 19, and we ask ourselves, what is Lot doing? And then we read 2 Peter, we think, righteous Lot? Lot, a righteous man? Lot, a man who believed the promises of God in, in the way of his father Abraham or uncle Abraham? Yeah, that Lot, he was a righteous man. I love having the New Testament to give us a fuller sense of events that occurred in the Old Testament. But it's easy to read Genesis and be hard on Lot. His life, after all, does seem to be marked by foolish decisions. For one, he dwelled in Sodom and surrounded himself with wicked people. Secondly, if you read this narrative in Genesis 19, it says that he offered his daughters to the men of the city. Remember, the men surrounded Lot's house and said, who are those men who are angels? Who are those men who you took in with you? Send them out here so that we can have sexual relations with them. As if it was just a common theme in that city. Sin was so, sin was so accepted that they were offended when Lot withheld them from him. But he offered his daughters in order to protect his guests. Thirdly, we see hesitation in Lot when the angels told him to flee the city. Kind of second-guessed it. Fourthly, even when out of the city, when rescued from it, clearly seeing the faithfulness of God on display, he ends up getting drunk and having sexual relations with his daughters, from whom spring nations that would, affect, that would afflict the Jews and be a stumbling block to them, Ammon and Moab. It's amazing. It's easy to disregard him with all those weaknesses. Consider your own weaknesses. Does God fail to deliver you in your weaknesses? Does God fail to deliver you in times of compromise? Does God reject you because you are not totally sanctified? But let's look at Lot. On the other hand, consider this. Lot knew the city was wicked. He told the men of the city to not engage in this wickedness in Genesis 19. In Scripture, we see no indication that Lot partook of that wickedness. Also figure, knowing this wickedness, he took a great personal risk upon himself by telling those angels, come under my roof, you will be safe there. Do not spend the night, right? He insisted, do not spend the night in this wicked city. Put his own life on the line to exercise hospitality. And speaking of hospitality, I realize, I think it's Ezekiel that talks about God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah because they weren't hospitable. And, they're try and there's this false dichotomy made between that and their sexual deviancy. But there's no dichotomy whatsoever. There's no, there's no contradiction. If Sodom and Gomorrah were not hospitable, namely they did not show love to strangers, how do you think that was expressed by the men of the city surrounding Lot's house and threatening rape upon his guests? That's not very hospitable if you ask me. So there's no contradiction. That lack of hospitality was simply expressed in their desire to take those angels and have their way with them. Here's another thing. He also, even though hesitating, he went with the angels. 
Even though they had to pull him out of the city, he believed their word. He went willfully and did not look back. Remember Lot's wife. Lot did not look back. I think we consider his faithfulness in that, that he obeyed that command. So we can take the New Testament's word for it, that Lot looked at the culture of Sodom of his day, and he grieved. He was grieved by it. The New Testament here says, oppressed and tormented, in Peter's own words. Lot, with all his mistakes, with all his seeming compromises and immature actions, he was grieved by the sin that he saw. He was grieved by the ungodliness. That we would be the same way to look around at, our, at the ungodliness that pervades all our culture and have the same weight on us. That we do not merely wink at sin. That we do not look at the sin of our society and say, well, that's just the way it is. There's nothing we're going to do. But are you grieved by it? Are you grieved not only by the sin and the, rebellion and the rebellion against God, but are you grieved for the souls of the ungodly? Are you grieved enough to point their ungodliness out and say, repent and flee to the Savior and believe the gospel? There's so many, I think, I think times are coming. We have, we're going to have more and more opportunities to do that, to make our witness very clear. Because what we, because what Scripture deems as righteous and what society deems as righteous I'm telling you, that is becoming increasingly uh, distinctive, increasingly different. I believe that the blur, the blur is, be, is going away and we are seeing more clearly that the righteousness of God is exemplified in Scripture is so clear, is so set apart from this counterfeit righteousness we see in society today. But he was oppressed, that is weighed down. We feel that sometimes. We feel weighed down by the sin of society. We want to do something about it. We want to make Christ known. We want to see the Holy Spirit working and change our culture back into one that honors and adores Jesus Christ. He was tortured. This word is emblematic of, of this word for tormented is emblematic of tortured under examination. Like you're in the room and you're tied down. And you're being poked at. Pain is being inflicted. This was Lot's attitude. This is what Lot felt being in the presence, as Peter says, day after day of ungodly people. And we don't even have to imagine that. We see that. We see wicked celebrated all the time. We see that wickedness is, is demanded to be celebrated. I don't think Lot is going to be a righteous man and hide himself in his house in Sodom. His faith is going to be noticed at some point, And his faith is going to be challenged. Lot, why don't you do what we do? Why do you not celebrate what we celebrate? Why do you not accept us, Lot? Why do you have to be so stodgy and self-righteous, believing in your God? Why don't you accept our way? We get the same thing, and we're going to continue to get it. To have those same challenges of faith and still have to stand against the unrighteousness of our day. If you read in the text again, that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct, just general deviancy, lasciviousness is a fancy word, call it, of, of unprincipled men, ungodly men, for what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So even though 
we see some compromises in Lot, he was still a righteous man, that we can look at him as God saw him, that he still trusted in God. He still believed and would not condone what they did and would not partake in it. So we see all of that, all of that happening to Lot in the midst of people who manufactured their own righteousness, who did what was right in their own eyes and demanded that Lot do the same. More, it's, it's easy to write off the faults that we see in these old saints, and yet it also reminds us of our own frailty, of our own compromises, and how living in an ungodly culture, we cry out to God so that we may have the strength to walk with Him and to be faithful. It's not easy. And yet, God will deliver us in that regard. So let's look at the last one. I think we've got some time. Let's, let's get through this. Uh, verse 9. Tormented by their lawless deeds. Then, so now we have the then. We have this huge if-then passage. Now we have the then. If all that is true, if God will not spare angels, if He will preserve Noah and judge the rest of the world through a flood, if He will rescue righteous Lot and judge Sodom and Gomorrah, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So we've already talked about um, keeping the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, so we don't need to go in depth um, in that again. But let's focus on this, because this is where the real encouragement lies this morning. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So there's the answer to our question. When, when the first century church would see this announced judgment that was soon to come, all the persecution, all the false teaching, we can wonder the same thing today. What is the Lord going to do about this and what is to become of us? The same thing. We have the same promise. But the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Who are the godly? Those who trust in Christ alone. That's who the godly are. Those who walk with Him. Looking at life through His lens. Thinking God's thoughts after Him. Rather than the ungodly who do not think of God in any sense except to rebel against Him. So what specifically is He guarding us from? He says, from temptation. Not only destruction, but from temptation. I think the temptation goes back to the opening of this, of this chapter. It's the temptation to deny Christ as Master. Right? It's this temptation that was lingering throughout the first century whether you were Jew or Gentile, of retreating back into the obsolete customs of Judaism, especially if you were a Jew. If you were a Gentile, it was, treat, it was retreating back into the obsolete customs of a pagan lifestyle, which Peter warns about in the book of 1 Peter. They're surprised that you don't go headlong with them into ungodliness. When it comes to Judaism, even Paul even talks about going back to the rite of circumcision, report, repeatedly warns against that. But God delivers us from retreating into those things that have been made obsolete, that past life where we, in effect, deny God, deny Christ as master, right, as the one in charge. But I think in a very powerful way, this is expressed historically um, in the sense that when the Lord was present in His judgment upon Jerusalem, He actually made a way for Christians to escape the city. It's really interesting in a, in a historical note. Now, listen to Matthew 24, verses 15 through 16. 
Jesus says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We see the same thing expressed in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, except he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then flee to the mountains, right? He's telling that, for, that body of first century Christians, or those who would believe in him, to flee. This is not for us. This is for them, even though there's plenty of application there. And he says those will be the days of vengeance. So how do the Christians escape when Jerusalem is under siege, surrounding by armies? What are they to do? Listen to this. Like Noah, they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And like Lot, they had an occasion to escape. So while the city and temple were under siege, there was a, a, a Syrian governor named Gaius Kestius. He marched into Judea, history tells us, with a force of about 30,000 men. This is in September of 66 AD. Right? So getting close. And what was going on was he was attempting to restore order in Jerusalem when the first Jewish-Roman war was going on. So listen to this. At some point, for reasons unknown, it is thought that he lost his siege equipment in an ambush. Kestius' forces withdrew from the temple area. And as Josephus recounts in his Wars of the Jews, Kestius did so without any occasion or without any just occasion in the world. So it was thought that no one really knew why he withdrew, but withdraw he did. Many Jews perceived this as a sign of weakness, and they chased the Romans down. What did this do? This gave Christians an opportunity to flee the city. God delivered them. In his book, Last Day's Madness, Gary DeMar remarks that many Christians fled to a nearby rock fortress called Pella, about 60 miles northeast of Jerusalem. What's the point here? God gave them an out. He did not judge the righteous with the wicked. He made a distinction, just like he did with Lot and Noah, so that his people in Jerusalem would not fall by either Roman sword or apostate Jewish sword. The sword was intended for his enemies, not for his beloved. So we find that. So in closing, I want to offer three principles of God's judgment and deliverance. And this is not exhaustive, but just something to close us with so we know how to think about His judgment and His deliverance. One is this, is that God judges and delivers perfectly. This speaks to His timing, and His timing is gracious. Do you realize in Genesis that Abraham basically negotiated with God, right? If you find 50, 40, right? 30, 20, 10, all the way down, maybe doing some mental math like Lot, his wife, how many people, all the way down to 10, and the Lord still said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. God is gracious. Man, that is a lot of mercy. Even, even Abraham prevailed upon his own character, right? He says, far be it from you, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? See, Abraham wasn't presuming upon God. He knew the Lord's character. He knew that the Lord would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so he prevailed upon what he believed about God. And sure enough, the Lord was gracious and said, I will not. But when that judgment came, he made a distinction. He judged perfectly and he judged in his own timing. He judged 
when the clock ran out with Noah, He judged when the clock ran out with Lot, and he, will, he would judge when the clock ran out with Jerusalem. So He would judge perfectly in His own time, giving many a chance to repent. Right? He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. All of His beloved, all of His elect. So this leads us to the next one. The Lord judges and delivers righteously. That is, as we just said, He makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He gives a time for escape. Even when it comes to temptation, right? No temptation has overcome us that isn't common to man. The Lord is not going to let things come into our lives. Let temptation to wander away from Him become so powerful that we do it. Right? But in the middle of that, He gives us a chance of escape. Escape from, from, from temptation, and even in this context, an escape from His very wrath. He gave His people a way out, and He told them so. Jesus Himself gave the truth necessary so that His people would know when to leave Jerusalem so that the righteous would not be judged with the wicked. And so we find that very same course that the Lord takes throughout throughout redemptive history as He saves His people and judges them. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted, but that is not the same as the Lord's righteous indignation poured out upon an apostate nation or king or people. We understand that in the midst of this, we will be persecuted, but the Lord will avenge us. That is why we are able to persevere. We leave ultimate justice into His hands. And that leads us to our last one, is that when the Lord judges and delivers, He does so severely, right? Wiped out the whole world with the flood except eight people. Judged all of Sodom and Gomorrah except for Lot and his wife and who knows who else, but the number was very small. He judged severely, turning, as Peter says, the whole city into ash. He reduced them to ashes and He made them an example. And the ungodly should look at that in fear, and fear the Lord. But they would continue to rebel against them when the judgment is so sudden and so unexpected and so severe. So we find that God judges severely and justly. That the punishment fits the crime. And it burns up those who rebel against Him. In the same way, this approaching day of the Lord, we find that the Lord will burn away the entire old order in this judgment to set the stage for the blossoming of the new creation in Christ, which continues today. This is where the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God comes in, and we are the purveyors of that. We are the preachers of righteousness who call men to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But think of this too. He delivers us severely. That is, He delivers us to the uttermost. He makes sure that we are kept intact. He makes sure that His people are delivered through judgment, that even though we are persecuted even severely, that He continues to care for His flock. He continues to minister to us. He continues to grow us, to build us into a holy house, into a holy priesthood, so that we continue to walk worthily before Him with all the grace that He supplies for us. So we could say so much more about this. But those are the things... I want to encourage you with today that the Lord will judge severely, but He will not He, he will not fail to make that distinction. He will not judge the righteous with the wicked. In fact, He will deliver 
us. And often we will have the pleasure of experiencing that deliverance, not only in eternity, but even now as we are able to bear witness uh, to Jesus Christ Himself judging and putting down kingdoms. And yet, one common thread remains. His people. His people who represent Him and proclaim His grace among the nations. So let that be true of us, my friends. And as I warned last week, do not be, if you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not be swept away in this judgment. Judgment will be terrible. Right? Judgment will be severe. But know that the Lord does make that distinction. So if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. I want to put that out there and insist you must hear, you must believe in what Christ has done and cling to Him in faith and rest in what He provides and become one of His own whom He will deliver to the uttermost. So let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and faithfulness to us. We thank You, Lord, that we can uh, reflect on Your goodness, make it through a passage like this, and, and know that You save us to the uttermost. You are a great Savior. You deliver us in the midst of judging those who do not know You. We rejoice not in the death of the wicked, but we rejoice in the fact that Your righteousness is on full display when You do judge the wicked. That there is a time when You will no longer when you will no longer tolerate the wickedness of society. And we recognize, Lord, even in our own time that perhaps our own country is a withering branch. We pray that you would preserve it so that your kingdom can continue to advance. But we know that no matter what you choose to do with our nation, you are a good God and you will not allow us to be swallowed up in judgment with the wicked. So in light of that, Lord, help us to remain steadfast. Help us know that everything that you orchestrate in your own redemptive plan is for your glory, but it is a glory that we also will be able to share in, that you will glorify us, that we will be able to one day fully partake um, in the fullness of this saving work that you do in us through Christ. Help us, God, to walk faithfully. Help us, Lord, to continue to be discerning, to point out false teaching, to like, expose and, and put out anything that tries to tempt us away to a point where we deny You as Master, where we deny You as Savior. We don't, we don't want that to happen in our own congregation, Lord. We want to be strong in, in You and the power of Your might and to put on the armor of God and to withstand the evil day and after having done everything, to, to continue standing, uh, knowing that You are the One who makes it so. You cause us to stand. And Lord, may we walk in light of that. That because You cause us to stand, we can love one another. We can walk together in brotherly kindness. Um, serving one another. Uh, warning one another. Exhorting one another. Keeping each other from sin and from compromise. Um, showing mercy. Showing grace. Being patient with each other. Knowing that even men like Noah and Lot were not perfect. They, but they were righteous with a righteousness not of your own and I pray not of their own and I pray that we could recognize it in each other that we could see the, the very work of the gospel in one another's lives and and therefore cherish each other and continue to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Lord, we can't do that without you. 
We need your strengthening. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. And by faith, we can submit that request to you this morning. So please, God, help us to remain. Help us to stand strong. In Jesus' name, amen.